This is Faith Revisited. Welcome to the podcast. On Faith Revisited, we'll talk about our own church as we're constantly trying to adapt to an ever-changing world as a downtown historic church. We'll talk about United Methodist Matters as our denomination faces an exciting and uncertain future. We'll explore church leadership in the 21st century. And we'll talk to different faith leaders about their perspectives of religion today, how we can be more authentic, stop alienating people, and how faith is more important than ever to connect us to God and each other. Hey, maybe we'll touch on a topic that speaks to exactly where you are in your faith. We won't know until we try, right? Let's do it. Hey everybody, this is Ben. I'm here for a uh, another interview that I'm so excited about for another episode of the Faith Revisited podcast. I have two of my friends here um, whose work we want to talk about some incredible research, I think really groundbreaking research in the United Methodist Church. I want to introduce you to Nancy Malcolm and A.J. Ramirez. Nancy, A.J., uh, y'all are professors. A.J.'s at Valdosta State. Nancy's at Georgia Southern. I want to give y'all a chance to introduce yourselves to our audience, and then we want to jump right into this great research that y'all have been um, sort of eyeball deep in here for a while. So, Nancy, why don't you start? Yeah, thanks. I'm a sociologist at Georgia Southern University, and I focus both my teaching and research in areas of gender, sports, and childhood. So I've done projects on just one of those things on various occasions, and sometimes I combine two or all three of those topics. And um, I'm also a Methodist here in the South Georgia Conference. Wonderful, wonderful. AJ, how about you? Yeah, um, well, uh, AJ, yeah, Ramirez here. I'm I'm here over at um, Valdosta State University. I, too, also teach in the uh, Department of Sociology. I'm also the coordinator for Women's and Gender Studies. And uh, most of the research that I've been doing lately has been focused on women's rights, uh, gender, and obviously the church, um, and education. Uh, and I'm part also of the, the South Georgia Conference. I am also United Methodist. We are so glad. And and one of the fun things is we have some of the finest research institutions in the state of Georgia. And I would argue in in, within our South Georgia annual conference and having uh, just two of you who are so talented, uh, wonderful researchers, um, both United Methodists, both in the South Georgia annual conference. We're so excited. Um, You two have done and begun publishing a really important piece on primary accounts, and this is my wording, not yours, primary accounts of, of LGBT plus persons and their experience as part of the United Methodist Church. Can, can y'all just kind of begin to give us a framework? Why do you think these voices that many would argue have been either ignored or marginalized, why is this such an important piece of research for you? personally for me, and I'll just go first and I'll let Nancy follow. Um, For me, it was important to be involved, to have voice and to allow the voices of those um, involved in this situation 
to have that opportunity to to share their stories. Um, you know, we got involved with this originally, uh, trying to uh, better understand why folks were staying in uh, as opposed to leaving. We had a lot of understanding for what who was leaving and why, but we really didn't quite understand uh, the 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 staying part. And so, honestly, the motivation got. It, it became very personal also as as I continued on with Nancy with the research and um, listening to these very real life uh, lived experiences of these folks and uh, really empathizing with them, honestly, throughout the process. So, Well, and what, Nancy, before you sort of begin, uh, remind us, give me the, the real title, your academic title for sort of the, your working uh, research here. So for this project... Um, I, I suppose the title of the larger project is Why Stay? Um, you know, we're spinning off lots of little little pieces that each have different titles, and some of them are just we haven't decided on yet. Yeah, but, yeah, that's good. I mean, I, you know, I got involved in this first just as a member of a church who was concerned about the direction of the going and um, involved with Reconciling Ministries Network and wanting to think about what we could do in South Georgia, where it, it seems like a pretty tough road uh, to follow to, to push towards a more affirming and open church. And um, so my personal involvement was was that, personal involvement and a little bit of activism on the side. And uh, as I got more involved in the community with that, it was my colleagues here at Georgia Southern who said, you really need to turn this into research. This is a great topic. You need to be investigating that more. And so... That's how I got started with it. So for those, just, just as a, a very quick sort of update, I mean, most people by now know the the disconnect in the United Methodist Church. We have folks who want to be fully inclusive in terms of offering at least weddings and ordination of persons who identify as LGBT plus. Um, but I mean, you and I, uh, the three of us would also say it's much deeper than even that. Um, and then there are those who, for, for various reasons, uh, have reason to believe that that's not uh, historically or theologically something we should be doing. And the denomination is in the midst of a split over that. And so you two are bringing to light research on a conversation that I have personally struggled with as a cisgendered white male. I am the epitome of the top of the totem pole of the United Methodist Church. And one of the things that is missing is we talk about... LGBT persons and their sacred worth and all the things, but we never talk with them. We we have people who identify as a, as LGBT plus in our congregations, and as Nancy, as you alluded to in South Georgia Conference, we we almost think this is such a homogenous place that they don't exist. But we, the three of us know better. There are folks all <laughs> over South Georgia who want to go to a United Methodist Church who identify across the spectrum, and you two are bringing to light their voices. What are some of the most important insights that you gained from persons you interviewed? Oh, I'm going to let Nancy start uh, <laughs> and then I'll see if I need to follow. <laughs> some of the most important insights have been, I think that there is a lot of hope out there. Now, you know, I should clarify, we have mostly been able to talk to people who decided to stay in the mm -hmm. denomination. Um, the larger project is titled Why, Why Stay, and 
I was in part uh, started thinking about this at an academic conference where um, scholars who were studying religion and sexuality presented their research. And it was all on the harms to LGBT individuals who were um, attending churches. I mean, the higher suicide rates and lowered self-esteem and alcohol and drug addictions and and problems. You know, I mean, this there were the evidence shows us that uh, that it's a very difficult thing for somebody who identifies as queer to maintain um, their position in a church and to do so with the self-esteem and so and a positive self-concept. I mean, you know, there are of course affirming churches, but but that's kind of unusual. You know, most gay and lesbian Christians, in fact, don't necessarily attend an affirming church. So somebody in the audience stood up and asked, well, why did they even stay? If we know there are all these problems that that attending church and, and maintaining your Christian identity leads to all of these negative things, why stay? And what was really interesting to me is that the researchers there in that room, I was just one of the audience members, they weren't asking that question, so they didn't know the answer. And so that planted a seed for me of, of it needing to be a question to ask. And we, we set out doing this research and wanted to talk with people who have both decided to stay and those who have left, but it's really hard to find people who might identify as former Methodists who are also willing to take part in you know, a research project. So they're less likely um, to respond to a request for an interview. So people who are holding on are very ready to talk about their experience, that they're, they're eager to share uh, because of hope, I think. And there's a real hope for the future. Mm. That's great. AJ, what about you? Yeah, so just the hope piece, definitely. And this this idea or or just the sense that there are, are so many folks. I mean, I'm a gay person. I mean, I am a I'm a gay Methodist. And and you know, there's there's this connection you have with you know the 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 denominations that we end up choosing to to worship in and to and to follow that calling in and you know when i've when i've been listening to to the stories of these individuals and hearing that sense of i'm sticking in because I want to be the person there to 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 give others hope uh, that may be going through this similarly, and and I'm also um, I'm not hiding anymore. You know, I'm 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 going to be my authentic self because that's exactly what it means to be a Christian is to be, you know, uh, capital T true. And and so uh, I, I when Nancy had invited me to join her on this, I I was ecstatic and thrilled, but also felt personally that this was an answered prayer. Um, because being in South Georgia is very difficult for, for, for many, you know, uh, groups, marginalized groups, but specifically, you know, being gay and Christian is, is, is a challenge in many ways, at least for me personally. And so being able to have the invitation from, from a, a fellow scholar and academic to participate in something that wasn't just going to be scholastic in nature, but it was also going to have something to do with my faith. Um, it, it was very motivating for me to, to find a, a, a like-minded individual where we could kind of go into 
to this, um, you know, research-based, but also come into it in a personal sense as well, that, you know, as Christians, this is important to us, and it's important to the population who lives here, and it's very important to the denomination itself as as United Methodist Church moves forward in a progressive fashion to, to embrace all people as whole people. Mm, that's great. What I mean, y'all did qualitative research here. A big chunk of this, at least, is very qualitative. What were the hardest, what were your biggest obstacles in your research? What were the difficulties you ran into? We had a lot of people respond. <laughs> um uh, you know, Nancy will will even tell you, you know, we were we were hoping for what, 50? Like if we could just get 50 folks, you know, we were going to be thrilled, but we were getting past a thousand and then past 1200 and then past 1400. It was, it was getting to a point where we were like, yeah, I think we got enough. I, I was surprised by the response. I really was. And then figuring out how we were going to address the interview piece of that was the biggest challenge because about 500 of that, you know, 1400 plus folks had um, volunteered to, to, to do an interview. And so when there's just two people and we're both still <laughs> teaching full time at two universities and and teach and grading right and having our personal families we we were like okay how how are we going to do this <laughs> but nancy yeah and we ended up we have conducted 114 interviews and each interview is about 45 minutes long on average you know plus or minus um transcripts are 15 to 20 pages long of that and so the next step is analyzing what we have and and the biggest challenge is that that next step, all of it along the way, but this next step is like drinking from a fire hydrant. There's just so much um, amazing information that we've collected and the things that we've heard in the interviews that need to be shared. But how do you get that little first sip? Because <laughs> yeah. there's just so much of it. That That's a fascinating problem to have to face because usually it's, I can't find people who want to talk to me, but that's not our problem. Where, where, this is going to sound like a dumb question, but I think it's helpful. Where are these respondents from? Where are they coming from? So we started off, AJ was alluding to, a Qualtrics survey that was sent to members of Reconciling Ministries Network. So they partnered with us to distribute the information and essentially assure their members that we were legitimate and that, you know, please help these researchers by filling out the survey. And as AJ mentioned, the end of the survey asked if they would be interested in doing an interview. And so we focused only in the United States. Um, there was some desire, you know, why not talk about global? But I think the context is so different and not familiar to us that our that, that was focusing just on the United States. Mm -hmm. um, with, the, with that survey, we had um, 54 annual conferences represented. I think that's a good, <laughs> you know, I think that's about 100%, right? So, and um, they were all over. People are all over. Did did you? I mean, we're all three from South Georgia. Did you you had people from South Georgia responding, or was it difficult? No, I mean we we had we had yeah we have folks in Georgia responding throughout the state. Yeah, I, and the reason I just say that is there there is this myth out there that while some annual conferences on the whole have probably stronger views one way or the other, I just want to illustrate for listeners that there's, there's LGBT plus people in every annual conference in United Methodist churches 
across the connection. This is this is not like we're 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 all of a sudden going to admit some kind of new uh, group of people, and they're there. They're in our pews. They they exist and and serve and lead and love and give and all the stuff. Um, so that's, I just want people to get the the scope and the breadth of of, of your responses. This is not just about LGBT plus persons, even though it is, but they have that dual role of this is about the United Methodist Church. They represent the church because they represent the scope of our connection. Um, what do you think are some of the hardest experiences that you, I mean, obviously protect details and, and, and things like that, but on a general sense, some of the harder things of, of what it's like to be an LGBT person in the United Methodist Church? You know, it, it just, it was so diverse with, with the different experiences of the folks who were presenting. Um, I think, I think one trend is that, well, well, first let me say that there were many allies who, who responded to this survey and, and were interviewed. So it, th- this is, is, is not just LGBT identifying folks in the church uh, that we're working with. We're working with cisgender uh, allies here who are saying we have thought about leaving because the church is not uh, inclusive um, and affirming. So it, it was it was it was very um, it was very interesting to see the amount of straight cisgender folks responding in this in this research as using their platform of privilege. Um, and it being very meaningful to them. So, uh, but I think, I think the, the, the key point with those who are identifying as gay or uh, bi in this situation were they, they really love Jesus. I mean, they really love God. And this was really not about uh, focusing so much on this, this ridiculous type of fight of, of identity of, of more or less, it was just accepting me for who God called me to be in the church and as a disciple of Christ. And I felt that there was this sense of real, the authentic self was coming down to that spiritual connection of who that person was. And it was, it was really bothering me how the church was missing the most important piece of this human life that they were sold out for God. And they were following their calling, but yet they were being denied the calling of God by the church (laughs) of all people, of all places, because of this side piece, because of this fleshy piece, because of this piece that, that has nothing, nothing to do who they marry or who they have a relationship with has very little to do with what their discipleship was in, in going forward in that calling. So it, it was very moving to hear the, the, the amount of, of authenticity of these Christ filled individuals. That's fantastic. You know, and among the folks we talked to with, with quite a few more allies than people who are LGBT identified. I mean, we've got, spoke to a lot of people, so large numbers of both, um, those allies mostly had children or siblings or friends or, you know, they, they had personal connections also. Um, I heard so many stories of pain. I mean, I cried along with people during interviews. It, that's definitely out there. 
I think if I step back, an observation that I can make is that of the individuals I spoke to who identified as part of the queer community, they were more likely to have found Methodism later as opposed to being cradle Methodists. Ooh. And that's because they came from even more exclusive denominations or non-denominational spaces, but they they had experienced excommunication or just being shunned or being told you can't be part of our church anymore. And they somehow found their way to a Methodist church that welcomed them in. And so there were a lot of stories of the United Methodist Church being the place that loved them after a lot of other religious spaces did not. And yet there's pain and fear at the prospect that they're about to go through the same shunning again, that 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 the outcome of 2019 General Conference and the, the move towards more traditionalism will mean, well, here's happened to me once and I'm going to get kicked out again, or I have to leave, I can't, they don't love me the way they told me they did. Mm. I'm a cradle Methodist, and that is that is so powerful because you take it for granted when this is all you've known that as much as we have this institutional, a friend of mine calls it food fight, we have this institutional food fight that we've been in that that wherever we are, this is also still the denomination in the midst of that that is a safe haven. For people who who are part of other traditions that are, are much more strident and hurtful at times, that they can find a home in the United Methodist Church of all places. I'll be damned. That's something to hear. Um, what are some of the brightest spots of hope that you heard people express? I have to sit and think on that one for a while. I mean, you just gave me a really good one. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. I mean, people are, they are experiencing love and, and welcome and affirmation in the United Methodist Church. They just want that to be a denomination-wide experience. Yeah. Um, I've heard some amazing things about weddings <laughs> and, and desires to have weddings, but, uh, you know, more often in, in the Western jurisdiction, for example, where, where a wedding might have been held and a couple decided that, uh, that they wanted to get married. Most often these were uh, gay and lesbian the congregation that they were there, and, but uh, they decided to hold a wedding and, and the, the United Methodist women jumping in and making it happen. Wow. I've heard more than one story about, and I know that that's not their title anymore, but but at the time, you know, it was the it was the Methodist women who said, no, we're going to have a reception and we're going to make a luncheon and we're going to decorate this way and we're going to, more than once, where the congregation is what rallies around and uh, and really pulls off a, a wedding for a beloved member. Wow, that's amazing. AJ, what about you? Uh. Well, the perseverance in this population of folks is incredible, at least with the ones that we've been able to to talk to. It, it um, you know, I think for the, the, I don't know any too many folks who can stay the course. I mean, there's options out there. I mean, right, folks can can go Episcopalian, they can go to certain non-affiliated, non-denominational types of, of independent churches or the United Church of Christ, right, UCC, things like that, who have already affirmed many of their local, you know, their congregations have that option. But these folks choose to stay in the United Methodist Church. And there was there was this theme of, 
John Wesley and and that the whole idea of, of fighting for those who are oppressed and and feeling that connection and how uh, one particular one uh, talked about going into hearing the first sermon and was sold, you know, immediately in the sense that he didn't hear any condemnation in that sermon. And, you know, it, it that was it for him. Wow. that That's what he needed when he had been to other types of churches and had felt this kind of, you know, hell, kind of the fear, more or less trying to drive you into salvation as opposed to love and affirmation and and doing good and loving others. And I think that amazes me that this is about following a foundation of what this denomination is saying it is with regard to following Christian teaching. And so this whole piece of non-inclusivity doesn't fit. It just doesn't fit with what the Methodist church is and what it says it is. And and, and, you know, I've, I've, I talked about this previously uh, when we spoke with a, a previous individual in an interview about, you know, the, the Methodist church and, the, you know, the, the 19th century when the, the slavery was going on and the abolition movement, you know, how there was groups in the Methodist church who were against slavery. And, and you know, there was kind of a, a rift on that. And then the ordination of women in the 20th century, and there was a rift there. And, you know, I, I see how, the, you know, there... This gives hope, I think, to folks when they say, wow, the foundation is so resilient in the UMC that surely if I stick it out, <laughs> they'll go back to that foundation and those roots. So I see that sense of hope with, with many of these folks, and I'm impressed and I'm touched by it. It really is moving to, to see folks like that go through so, so much, have this sense of spiritual abuse, but yet they still find hope. I, I'm going to, I'm going to. I'm going to, I'm going to run it out. I'm going to keep going. That's amazing. Here's a, uh, to localize this just a tad, and we may finish here. We're all three a part of the South Georgia annual conference and our annual conference will be about half the size roughly that it, it, it was a couple years ago after this may, we're going to have a, a couple hundred churches disaffiliate. Um, we have had, I've been in ministry 13 plus years now. I've been in the conference for 40 years, my entire life. We have had uh, our ups and downs, mostly downs in terms of how we recognize across the conference, the value and uh, um, sacred worth of, of LGBT persons. And yet we're moving, inching toward a place where However many of us are going to be left, we're going to be moving with the United Methodist Church and hopefully this more inclusive stance. Where do you see hope locally in our annual conference, in your local communities? Where do you see hope? Neither one of us wants to say it first. Um, that's, a, that's a hard one. It's a yeah. tough question. Um <laughs> How about hope for hope? Uh, Valdosta, we, we uh, me and my wife have just recently, um, probably in the last, I don't know, six or seven months, started a reconciling group here in Valdosta, Georgia. And, um, you know, we've lost every United Methodist Church in Lowndes County except for one. Mm -hmm. And we started the reconciling group before that. We, we just had a hunch, right, that it, it was going to happen. And so, you know, I guess there's hope there in the sense that we're, we're 
trying to to have that space, that safe space for those United Methodists who don't want to go back to their disaffiliated congregations and they want something different and they want to stay UMC. Um, so I see hope possibly in home churches and and small groups like that, reconciling groups, you know, getting back to the roots of no more, not not the sense of the bureaucratic aspect, but getting back to what this is really about. Yeah, that's good. I suppose I, I part of me wants to say that, you know, if we look at, at youth groups and college students, because I'm around an awful lot of college students, I know here at Georgia Southern, which is typically a, a more conservative university, um, it was years ago when more than half the student population on their on their incoming surveys indicated that they supported same-sex marriage. I mean, and, and even if they said, I'm conservative, I'm Republican, the, the majority, more than half, say, I support same-sex marriage. For that generation, um, LGBTQ inclusion and affirmation is not a big deal. Mm. It's, it's an, of course, that's what we would do. And yet, you know, hope goes with fear. I mean, the, the church is losing them. <laughs> if the church decides to hold on to the traditional view on heterosexuality is the only way to be right with God, or, you know, if you're not heterosexual, you better be celibate. Uh, there's not much hope in the future. There won't be a church, right? <laughs> generations are coming. New generations are coming. So I have to have some hope in that. Yeah, I think you're right. And, 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 and you know, I think both of you have touched on maybe my greatest sense of hope. And that is, and it may be chipping away down to the micro level, but throughout the annual conference, there are people who want to see a better and, and more loving United Methodist Church. Some didn't know that they wanted it until their church went through the difficulty of going through this vote, and then they voted, and then they left, and the people are going, wait a minute. I went and spoke to churches about staying, and at more than one church throughout the annual conference, some of the most conservative areas you could think of, people would come in tears and say, why is my church making me choose between my church and my family? Wow. And... They had been gener four or five generations at, at that church, but they had a gay niece or a son or a brother or whatever it may be. And and they were like, "Why? what is this choosing? Um, and a lot of their churches left. And some of them are reconciling and have reconciled that they're not going with them. And, and there's a lot of courage in that, that they're leaving something very important. We have a home group similar, AJ, to the one that y'all are connected to a church in a different town. We have one in Albany, Georgia, made up of people who left a large church who said, I cannot be a part of a church that does not include and then name whoever the loved one is in their life. Um, and there's grief in that, right? I mean, there's sadness. They left a church. Christmas, I, I think about it was their first Christmas. And when you're part of a large church, all the trappings of Christmas and Advent and the music, and they didn't have any of that. They had their home and our online worship. <laughs> <laughs> that was all they had, but it, but it became beautiful because there was those shared values. So if nothing else, maybe there's hope in that we're chipping away at maybe some of the unnecessary things and realizing that love and inclusion is a non-negotiable. Yeah. At least for, for many of us, I don't know. 
Yeah. Any final thoughts on your research or just where you want to see this go next? I just know this is going to keep me busy for a long time. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, not, not that I want you to have more work, but this is such important work for the church. I hope that you stay busy for a good while on this. So, yeah. Yeah, ditto. I mean, you know, I'm going to stick with Nancy for as long as she'll let me. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, just continue to kind of work through this and kind of see what happens. I mean, you know, we got 2024 next year and um, a lot of, a lot of this can can change and or or progress and we'll see. Well, I appreciate you two so much. Um, if nothing else, we can do a lot of institutional navel gazing and all of this disaffiliation, legal mumbo jumbo stuff about denominations and resources. But you two are really you, you're you're mining and and being stewards of sacred space. Um, and, and, and lifting up sacred voices. And so um, I am so grateful for your work. I know so many others are. We're going to include links in the show notes to places that, that this is beginning to be published. And as it continues to be published and, and your research comes out, we want to continue to share and spread the word of these, um, this important research and, and lifting up these wonderful voices in the United Methodist Church as we move into the scary unknown and maybe even hopeful future. So AJ, Nancy, thank you so much for being here. Thank, thank you ben. for having me, Ben. Everybody, that was another episode of the Faith Revisited podcast. If you have not already subscribed, go to your app store, wherever you listen to podcasts. You can download, subscribe, leave us a five-star rating if you so wish uh, while you are there. And we will see you next time on the Faith Revisited podcast. Mm-hmm.